welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, uh, definitely been missing you here. But finally back in the saddle for another podcast, another several podcasts to be honest with you because uh, as many of you know, it's been a few weeks. Uh, I've been traveling, so I've got quite a bit of catching up here to do. I appreciate everybody giving me some ideas today for things that you all want to hear about and uh, pretty much just copied every one of them, put them on some papers, printed them off, so it's going to be pretty impromptu. Uh, I've got three pages of questions here, so I'm pretty certain this is going to end up turning into multiple podcasts, uh, which is going to be fine because I actually have a glass of wine here with me, and Shaz is on call to bring me more if I need, so they could get even better towards the end, but uh, that's just what I'm going to do because I've been out in the backcountry, as many of you have seen from the posts, um, pretty rewarding to go out and uh, fulfill a long quest uh, to get my grizzly. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to save that for another podcast because uh, what I've done here is taken several of your questions uh, and I've kind of organized them so that uh, one One full page of questions is going to be hunting oriented, and I am going to tell that story and answer those questions on a separate podcast. But since I know so many of you out there are target archers and international archers and aren't really into the hunting thing, uh, I'm going to go ahead and separate that into a separate podcast uh, because I do appreciate everyone having their own opinion. I definitely favor hunting. I know some of you don't, so um, there's no reason to get in a discussion or an argument about it. I want you to be able to enjoy the podcast, so I'm going to go ahead and separate that that story from this past week onto a podcast that'll be pretty much specific to hunting-type questions, so I think that'll keep everybody happy. But uh, it's been an amazing several months. And I know um, one of the questions that we'll have here later is in relation to, you know, coming back from an injury. But all I can say is uh, everything happens for a reason. And I guess what happened with me and my shoulder, I just look at as something that was uh, intentional so that I could go out and learn to shoot a new way and learn new things about setting up a bow and how to shoot and what people uh who have uh you know who deal with this type of thing every single day exactly what they went through and it and it makes me appreciate all the para archers out there so much more and i guess before i even get into to covering any of these questions i want to make dang sure that um Because I've had a lot of people text me or, you know, reply on there that it's that it's inspirational and, you know, how awesome it is to, you know, that I'm motivating them by 
shooting my bow with my teeth right now uh, because of my shoulder. But I just want to make sure everyone out there knows that, you know, my motivation came from all of our para-archers and the people who have to deal with that every single day of their lives, not just, you know, the six or nine months of recovery time, whatever mine's going to end up being. Um, but those are the people that I look up to. And uh, if you want to be inspired as archers, then you need to check out um, some of the para-archery events. You know, go on, uh, you know, the World Archery website and view some of the live shooting from the para-archers because, to me, those are the people that, that are truly inspiring. Um, not just me that's out there trying to deal with, you know, an injury that happened and and uh, is a temporary thing rather than a permanent thing. So uh, it was definitely a great learning curve, and I'm appreciative for it. Uh, but I definitely don't want to take anything away from all those out there who were the ones who inspired me to make sure that I don't actually have downtime during these six or nine months that I'll be dealing with this. But uh, might as well jump into this first question. It's going to be from John Griffin. And, uh, you know, he's talking about how about uh, talking a little bit about tuning or preloading your limbs. Uh, pros and cons to preloading, how to figure out string and cable lengths for preloading. And this is actually something that a friend of mine, Ryan, uh, had asked me just earlier this week because he was um, working on his PSE bow and it was not making weight. It was a 60-pound bow and he was only getting, I think, close to 58 pounds or 57 and a half pounds or something like that. And he wasn't able to get his weight. So, he had texted me asking me about what to do. And, you know, preload is when you actually put more flex into the limbs when the bow is at rest. So, for example, a bow that has more preload would actually have a little bit shorter axle, axle length than a bow that does not have as much preload because what happens is as you shorten your strings and cables together they compress those limbs and they'll bend them more you know and as you flex the limb more um, in most cases it's going to give you more draw weight as you pull it back i have seen on some bows where there's actually a point where that stops and it doesn't doesn't happen but for the most part if you preload your limbs you are going to gain poundage um but you have to actually learn to preload in a formula that's not just going to only increase your poundage at the same rate as it will actually increase your drawing. So for the most part, the basic rule of thumb, if you want to add poundage um, or add draw length to your bow, you know, if you shorten your cables, you're going to compress those limbs more and you will get more poundage. Uh, however, you will also start to increase your draw length as you increase your poundage if you're just playing with either the string or the cable. So by shortening them both at kind of a perfect little recipe, you'll actually preload those limbs to where you're going to be able to still get that peak draw weight that you're trying to acquire. And, and keep in mind, I'm talking about three or four pounds 
plus or minus. Um, this is something that I'd normally do with some of my bows when I want to shoot 74 pounds instead of 70 or for example, when I used to um, shoot 3D, I always shot about 60, 59 to 61 pounds. When I shot FIDA, I always shot uh, about 61 to 62 pounds because it was within my limit. So what I would do is if I had my bow and it was bottoming it out at 50 pounds, um, because I get in the habit of always changing my strings and cables, um, I really believe in you know, going to a custom set of strings and cables, mainly because I like to pick my colors, but also uh, I just have a lot more, I guess, faith in, in being able to pick the exact material that I want, the exact serving that I want, um, which I guess just to give you a rundown, um, you know, I'm shooting winner's choice strings and cables. So, uh, and what I like to do is I actually like to have my end servings with a halo serving because it's a lot more durable. Um, I don't get the halo in the center, uh, just because, um, I found that if you do it in the center serving, sometimes that halo, just because of how it unspools as you serve it really tight, sometimes it can actually give you a slight peep rotation, um, so I stick with, uh, you know, the 62 braid on my center serving, um, and everything's, you know, been fine, but I like to pick my colors. I like to pick my materials, you know, even the, the string material I'm shooting BCYX, um, or I've shot 81, 8190X. I like, uh, I like both those a lot, um, I used to be a 452 or a 452X shooter um, and really, really preferred those materials just because the settling period was much shorter. Um, however, if your string and cable are made the correct way, um, you won't have that initial settling time that you would by choosing like a BCYX or an 8190 over that 452. And really the main differences between those is going to be what material is actually used in that string. So a 452 or a 452X is going to have more Vectran in it, which is a a non-stretch material. It's more a little bit more abrasive. It doesn't stretch. It doesn't have give. Um, but when you compare it to like a Dyneema type product like an 8190X or, or a BCYX, um, you know, something that has that Dyneema in there, um, it's going to have a little bit more stretch at the very beginning of the cycle. But, you know, these new blends actually try to take the best of both worlds and have that Dyneema, which is really superb for longevity. Um, and, you know, actually absorbing some vibration. And then they actually blend it in with some of that Vectran, which, you know, the Dyneema holds the Vectran from breaking or becoming brittle. It also absorbs some of that impact. But then the Dyneema or the Vectran then actually prevents that Dyneema from continually stretching. So, um, these blends are really, really good that's out on the market right now. It's not like, you know, 10 years ago where you either had to pick um, a Vectran type product or a Dyneema or Spectre type product. Now there's kind of a good combination of both. But since I replace my strings and cables, what I do if I want to get more poundage 
is I'll just go ahead and twist my cables up, you know, quite a bit. And I might put, you know, if I'm trying to get three or four pounds, I might put 10 or 12 twists in my cables. And then I'll go ahead and draw it back and see what kind of poundage it's getting. But also I'll put it on the draw board and see what kind of draw length it's getting. So if I go up to say it bumps up four pounds total, but then when I draw it back on the draw board, it's gained three quarters of an inch of draw length. Then what I'll do is I'll start adding twists to my string until I shorten that draw length back down to what I need it to. And what you'll find is that poundage is going to come down a little bit along with the draw length. Um, and then you may have to do it again. You might have to add a little bit more twist to, that, to the cables and get that poundage up a little bit higher. The draw length may, you know, go up again, but then you start twisting that string more, bring your draw length back down, and what you'll find is as you've shortened everything in the right combination, your overall peak poundage will elevate. Um, you know, keep that within reason. You don't want to try to take a 60-pound pair of limbs and preload them so much to the point where, you know, your axle-axle length is an inch and a half shorter than factory spec or, um, you know, or your limbs are getting six or eight pounds more than they're supposed to because you're ending up getting, getting yourself hurt. Um, but then what I'll do is once I know that measurement, you know, and I have everything twisted the way that I want, then what you can do is you can actually take off your strings or your cables and hook them on a nail and go ahead and pull them tight without losing any ear twists and get that measurement. And that measurement is what you're going to want to call in uh, when you order a set of custom strings and cables. That's what's so nice about it. Uh, even though your bow may call for a 36 inch bus cable, you know, you might call in and say, hey, I need a a 36 and 38 bus cable when the when the string is pulled tight at rest um, you know a lot of people build strings and cables under a lot of pressure but when you come to measuring it this way you want to make sure that they know that you're not measuring it under a load you're measuring it by just hooking it on a nail and pulling it as tight as you can and you can get your strings and cables ordered exactly to the length that you want and in the end you're going to be able to get a bow that has exactly the preload that you want as well um, if you find that you're kind of if your string is already twisted up quite a bit or your cable is already twisted up quite a bit and you really can't add more to it because it's starting to just spin in a big spool um, then what you can do is just put a knot right in your string now you're not going to be able to use this string or cable again once you throw those knots in there but normally if you just tie a knot right in the string it'll normally shorten it you know about three eighths to a half an inch right off the bat so then you could um, almost remove some twists out of that string tie it in knot and then kind of twist it to where you want but Ultimately, by making this commitment, you're going to end up throwing your uh, factory strings and cables kind of in the garbage in order to order a custom set that's going to give you the preload that you're looking for. So that's how you do it, John. Appreciate you uh, giving me the question. So next question here is going to be from Brad McAfee, and he's actually got several questions here. Um, relating to arrows and arrow selection. So I'm going to read through it and we're going to kind of pick on one of these at a time. So um, 
Brad's asking your arrow selection or preference for different types of tournaments. Um, what I mean is aluminum versus carbon, not diameter, and what do you choose for indoors or outdoors, five spots, Vegas or FIDA. Um, plus, he wants to know kind of what my choices are for veins or feathers, um, depending on the tournaments. And then, uh, you know, also what length veins or feathers that I choose. So I was always notorious for really trying to learn the types of areas that I was going to when it came to competition. And I'm the same exact way as a bow hunter. Um, if I know that I'm in a fixed setting to where, um, for example, okay, if your first turn of the year is down at ASA uh, in Gainesville, typically those were always very tight mode paths. Um, the, I knew the courses always averaged um, in the mid-30s for distances. Um, those palmettas grew up about five or six feet tall. So most of the time, the only thing that we really had to deal with was wind more so, or I mean uh, rain more so than wind. So when I would go to a tournament like that, I wouldn't have a problem shooting a slightly longer vein uh, if I needed to, simply because I knew that it really wouldn't factor into wind drift. However, if I wanted to go to, say, uh, the Arizona Cup, where I know that I'm dealing with wind, um, there's just no way that I'm going to take the same type of arrow or the same type of fletching combination there. With 3D... Like, for example, back when I was shooting, I know that in McKean, uh, that tournament was notoriously half in the woods and half out in the wide open. So I always would um, have one bow set up with a slightly fatter shaft, and then I would have another bow set up with a slightly smaller shaft that had better ballistic values. Um, if I was able to get both bows shooting well enough to where I was comfortable, then I I might shoot one one day on the on the sheltered range and then shoot the other one outdoors on the other range. Um, but typically back then I would shoot like a ACC or an ACE. It would be a slightly smaller shaft diameter, so it wouldn't have the the line cutting ability. But the ballistics in the wind were much better so I just felt like if I was shooting tighter groups in the wind because of my smaller diameter shafts in a shorter vein then I was at an advantage as compared to trying to compensate for the wind on those 10 or 15 targets uh, versus just shooting the smaller diameter for you know the extra 10 or 15 targets um, because in reality even though you're shooting uh, that smaller arrow diameter how many times are you really actually having to get down there for each of your arrows and and have someone call it whether it's in or out you know the reality is most time that's probably only you know 10 or 15 percent of the time you're actually having to make that call is it in or is it out so there are definitely tournaments where more arrows are that way but on average they're not so um, if I walk you through what I've shot, um, for indoor shooting, um, I've always stuck and I've really liked the 2315s. I've shot them really, really well. 
Um, even though the, they're a little bit smaller diameter than some of these bigger 27s, um, you have to shoot so much point weight to get these big arrows to tune the way that I like to. And, and you know, it starts to really slow down that arrow a little bit. And for me, I was just always a big fan of, you know, taking a large diameter arrow, putting a fletching on it, putting a heavier point in there to where I thought I was getting close to my, you know, to the correct spine. And then I would get kind of my old trusty uh, 2315s and have three or four of them with a 180 grain point, three or four of them with a 200 grain point, three or four of them with a 220 grain point. And I would just shoot fresh paper and shoot a full round with a, you know, with that 2315 with the, with the different points. And this would, this would happen over courses of weeks. Um, and what I would find is, you know, you kind of just start to look. If you have, I'm a firm believer in shooting on pre- fresh paper. And even if your club doesn't have it, it's a cheap investment to make to call. You know, I used to call Lancaster and I'd order 300 new Vegas faces or I'd order 300 new field faces. And I would just shoot those faces brand new each and every day. One, because I don't I don't like to learn to aim in holes. Um, obviously, when you're shooting on your own paper, if you start to make a nice hole right in the X, it sure is nice. Um, but a lot of people have anxiety shooting fresh paper because they just have never trained themselves to shoot in paper without aiming spots on there. And I really like to be able to to learn to shoot on fresh paper because ultimately that is what you're going to do when you're in the tournament situation. So I would, uh, I would go ahead and shoot different arrows, different point combinations at the targets and kind of try to weed out exactly what combination was giving me the best. Um, you know, I still remember the year when the uh, Easton Pro Tours first came out and Jeff Hopkins showed up, you know, I think to Gainesville or something and won the first ASA event with an Easton Pro Tour. Um, and then all of a sudden there's this huge influx of 3D shooters calling Jeff McNeil at Easton wanting Easton Pro Tours because everyone wanted to give them a try. And I think a lot of the 3D guys whom have had to go out to Reading and shoot at these longer distances for, you know, for score for some of the first times, you see a lot more of those guys showing up out there with smaller diameter shafts. Now, certainly there's been people that go out there and shoot their same old 3D setup with a big diameter shaft and a lighter point, and they do just fine. Uh, but they also know that there's one or two times where they where the wind kind of caught them and having that smaller diameter with less drag and a higher foc because you can put a point a point in there you just start to see those advantages the best setups i ever had for indoor shooting was a 2315 with 180 grain pro point with a four inch feather um, and a biter knock that was the year that I shot the 597 uh, indoor feet around. So that would be scoring the inner X um, with a 23 diameter shaft. Um, then when it comes to outdoors, um, for 3D, the setup that I shot the best for years was 
a 2312. I shot it at 59 pounds, sometimes 59 and a half pounds, depending on the bow. Some cams are a little more aggressive than others. But I shot it at 59 pounds at 2312 with a 90 grain point. Um, I had a slight overdraw, so I was able to shoot a 28 and a half inch uh, arrow shaft, and I shot a 1.5 vein on that. Um, now, when it comes to my outdoor bows, the best shooting bow I ever had was um, when I took X10s. Um, they were X10. It was a 410 shaft uh, with two inches off the back, and I was shooting a 187 shield cut uh, flex fletch vein with a 110 grain tungsten point, um, and I shot that exact same setup um, in Australia the year that I cleaned the field rounds. And uh, that was, uh, and I used that same exact setup for the outdoor FIDA um, and, you know, shot some unbelievable scores out there for the conditions as well, um, just off the 1400 mark. So, um, and actually for that indoor setup, um, the year that I, the year that I shot some 25 meter rounds and tied the 25 meter world record, um, that was with my 25 or 2315s with the four inch feather some years i found that the veins will shoot just as good as the feathers and they actually travel much much better but again that's just a matter of you going out and doing some of that homework for yourself um you know it you really do need to try that it only takes the smallest things to change the biggest things when it comes to shooting archery because it is such a finesse sport and if you are shooting those bigger diameter shafts like a 2613 or the 2712s or the full bores then yes you are going to have to probably shoot you know that 300 or higher point weight because you're probably not out there shooting 70 pounds um, for your indoor shooting. You know, a lot of these guys um, are shooting, you know, 50 to 60 pounds. So obviously in order to match that arrow perfectly to the bow that you're shooting, you do need to load the front of that arrow up so that that thing flexes correctly and gives you proper arrow flight. Uh, next question here is from Jason Fowler, and he wants to talk a little bit about cam timing and creep tuning, uh, as well as another thing, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about the cam timing and creep tuning, because this is super important, and um, actually, I'm kind of the master at creeping. Um, a lot of times when I start to try to aim more than pull, I'll immediately creep. Um, and because I'm such, um, because my whole basis to archery is focused around pulling through the shot, when the times do come where I start to try to talk myself into holding steadier, um, ultimately I kind of freeze up, I lock up, and then what will happen is I start to end up creeping. And I would guess 80% of the tournaments that I came in second place with and lost by one arrow um, I would guess 80% of them I shot high left, um, which is all, you know, the result of creeping. Um, because back when, you know, back when I competed the most, I was shooting Matthews. Um, and they were kind of notorious for when you crept with those. You couldn't really, you know, that's the one downside to the, 
single cam is like, you know, it's not like you're timing it against anything else to where you can actually work on that creep tuning as much. You can work on your cam position, your cam orientation, um, but to get the knock travel and everything that I wanted, um, sometimes it counteracted that creep tune. So with a hybrid cam bow or a two cam bow, then creep tuning is 100% something that you should focus on. And it's really easy to do with a, a shooting machine, but you can also do it if you have someone, if you mark an arrow when you pull back hard against the wall, have mark an arrow right in the center, you know, or right on the edge of your arrow rest, and then have someone watch you and kind of creep forward just a little bit, you know, a 16th or an eighth inch, and do your best to hold in the center and make your shots and see where those arrows hit. A lot of times, if you're at full draw very long and the, you know, your cables start to elongate, that top wheel will start to go forward before the bottom. And if your cam timing is not correct, then you can have some issues when you're creeping. Guys that are shooting these really aggressive cams um, are more prone to have this happen. So it's going to be that much more important. If you're shooting any type of speed cam or a cam that has a very low let off um, and a lot of holding weight, then you're prone to have issues with that. So you really, really need to focus on trying to shoot that bow with a slight creep and see what happens. And what, for the most part, what you find is you actually want to have your cams synchronized to where when you draw that bow back, the top cam actually touches the cable slightly before the bottom. So you're actually pulling harder into the wall in the top cam than when the bottom one stops. And then what you'll find is as you creep, you're not so close to the edge of that top cam rolling over on you, um, which is gonna affect where your arrow impacts. And again, creep tuning is something that you need to do. Um, and those are the benefits of having a shooting machine. You know, a lot of people, um, some people are that serious. They buy anything, they try it. But if you don't buy a shooting machine and you can't do your creep tuning with a shooting machine, then go ahead and pull your bow back. Use a silver marker or something. Mark your arrow exactly where it's either dead center in your burger buttonhole or where you're, uh, rest is supporting that arrow and then have someone watch you um, and that's one thing that I do as a coach a lot of times when I'm watching my shooters I'm trying to see how that arrow is doing on their rest if I see that arrow moving forward then I know that they're actually starting to collapse they're starting to break down in their shot and if they haven't done the creep tuning, it's guarantee that they are not going to hit the spot. And I can tell them you're creeping. You need to pull harder through the wall, and uh, and let you focus on you know keeping that front shoulder down and forward so that you have the ability to pull as much as you can with your back scapula and pull that elbow towards the wall behind you, um, so that you can pull through your shot. Uh, the second part of Jason's question is, he says, everybody gives me hell for my 3D setup, um, also my indoor setup because he shoots an 8-power small scope um, with a small green dot, and he says he's done really well with it. Um, and also, uh, the next person, Justin Wickline, he's asking about... Um, 
you know, what I believe in for magnification on lenses for field or 3D um, as well. So I'm going to kind of tie these two questions together. And actually several of you out there talked about scopes and pin setups and things because obviously uh, there's an unlimited option for scope powers and everything. So um, first off, you know, everybody's going to be different. Um, you know, I can tell you that back when I shot really any tournament, um, but I remember specifically um, I was in Croatia uh, at the World Field Championship, and we were in the, the semis, and I was sitting on a target. Um, our, our peer group target was myself, Dave Cousins, Dayon Sitar, and Chris White. And as we're sitting there, only two of us had the same exact type of power and aiming dot. Um, and actually, we didn't have the same power. Dave and I shot the same types of dots. Um, what we shot at the time was I like to shoot a small black dot that I then take a needle and some hobby paint and I'll drop a white dot right in the center, a small white dot right in the center of that black dot. Um, I like my dot to kind of cover up almost all of the gold um, on the face. I don't like it so small that it's floating in the X ring, and I like it just a little bit bigger than the 10 ring. I kind of like it between the 10 ring and the, and the outer gold. That's just me personally. Now, Chris shot a dot that was exactly the size of the whole gold he liked to cover the whole gold because he knew that as long as his pin if his target was solid that he wasn't going to be high or low in his shot um, the smaller your dot what i have found is the more likely you are to start kind of hanging low and starting to fall out of the target so you kind of have to be careful on that but when it comes to color choice a lot of that depends on a person's eye um, there's been years where I've shot fiber optics and I've really, really liked them, but then all of a sudden, just kind of out of nowhere the next year, um, I just did not really see the fine pinpoint on the fiber optics near as much as my dots. But on other years, I did. Um, when I shot 3D, I always shot a lower power lens at the most I ever shot was a four power lens, but most of the time it was a two power lens with a fiber optic up pin. Um, then once they started making the fiber optic pins drilled through the center of the lenses, I would shoot um, the fiber optic pin in the center of the lens, and it was the same thing. I really liked... Um, I like to have a fiber optic pin that was, um, you know, a kind of in between the size of the 12 ring and, and the 10 ring. And that was just my preference. Some guys like a dot so small that they can literally float that thing in the middle of the 12 ring. I've just found that with myself, when my pin is too small, I'll start to be able to fall down out of the spot easier. Um, I never really shot above a six power uh, lens, mainly because the other thing you got to remember is when it comes to lens power, so much of this will be determined by your draw length. If you've got a longer draw length and that scope is further away from your face, then the magnification is going to be higher than someone that shoots that same sight closer. 
So you got to remember, um, for me, my sight distance from my peep to my lens was about 32 and three quarters of an inch. Um, whereas, you know, you look at someone that's got a 28 inch draw, well, dang, you know, their whole draw length isn't even uh, that long. They may only be 29 inches or 30 inches from their, their center of their peep to their scope rod. So a six power lens to them is probably going to look a lot more like a four to me. Um, if you're shooting 3D, it's really helpful to be able to see some silhouette of the target and also not to have the more power you have, typically the darker that lens will start to appear. It'll be a lot harder to see things in shaded situations and when targets are set back in like dark shaded areas. Um, so I always liked being able to see a little bit more of the target to where I knew I was aiming on the right spot. Plus, um, you also obviously magnify your movement less with a lower power than if you have a higher power scope. So some people actually start to get into their target panic situations or they start to feel that anxiety more when they see more movement happening. So by reducing that movement, you can also have a little bit more comfort that you're holding steadier. But you also need to be able to see what you're shooting at. When it comes to outdoor spots, uh, field or feet of field, obviously the targets, um, the paper have very good spots on them. It's not like shooting 3D. You know, you have good visual sighting of the of the the spot, so you're able to have more variance. I think in your your power and your color of your dots and size of your dots. You know, uh, for a long time, you know Jesse Broadwater did so good by shooting a frosted lens to where he could only see through the small clear part that was about the size um, of the bullseye through the center of his scope. So he was more or less centering the target he wanted to hit in the center of the, the open glass that was in the center of the frosted glass. And that's a great method for those of you who are finding yourself falling off the target or you know starting to, to hang low off the target. Um, you know, by really having a setup to where you're forcing yourself to hold on the spot perfectly, then you're going to start doing that. And one thing that everyone out there needs to know is there is a lot of time that you have to dedicate to really making something imprint into yourself to where you're able to do it without having to consciously think about it each and every time. Um, you know, it took me two years at least of shooting a hinge release before I could ever try shooting a different release. And then only after a few months, um, I punched it again. So immediately I had to go back to uh, a hinge release to teach myself how to do that. And it, it might have taken me four years, maybe five years before I could ever shoot a thumb button again. And be able to shoot the type of shot that I need. So if something doesn't work in a week's time, then my argument is you just really haven't committed to it. I mean, if you want to commit to it, then, you know, take that release and say, this is all I'm going to shoot for one year. Give the rest of your releases to someone and tell them to get rid of them or hide them. And just say, I don't care how bad I shoot. 
I'm going to force myself into shooting this release for one full year because this is the one that's actually making me have surprise shots. So uh, hopefully we covered everything about that. Um, let's see. He also, Justin also asked about um, stabilizer setup for hunting class or having a sidebar for backcountry hunting. I'm not personally a big fan of that. Um, I like the new offset stabilizer holes that actually get your stabilizer out to the opposite side of your riser as your quiver just for balance. Um, but I'm not, you know, I try to keep it simple. I like to travel light. Um, you know, every year they come out with a, a hunting bow. I just, that's really, really light. I always just look at it as it allows me to maybe have, you know, a slightly heavier stabilizer on there, or it might allow me to have an extra arrow in my quiver or something like that. Um, I like a bow that has a little bit of weight to it, but I also don't like a bow that's too heavy. Um, I know several people, uh, one of my staffers, Justin Peak, shoots a big old stabilizer. Uh, the thing practically hangs out the dang uh, shooting blinds when he's hunting turkeys. Um, and then back when I used to do a lot of hunting with Darren Cooper, he always had side rods and stuff like that. But I think the guys that, um, you know, I guess are more focused on target guys or a lot of the Western guys, they're, they're more focused on having a setup that's kind of more of a hybrid between hunting and target. Um, I personally have always kept my stabilizer setups very, very simple. It allows me to keep my shoulder in the position that I need to. Um, when I'm tired, if I've been hiking up a hill or running after something and I come up and I have to make my shot, I don't have to worry about my body being contorted because I'm trying to pick up more weight than what I'm supposed to. So I guess from that point of view, I don't have a problem with it, and I say if you like it, then go for it, but I just try to keep my setup simple. That's just, you know, that's just me personally. Um, so it looks like I've got time here for one more question for this podcast, and then I'm going to go ahead and just keep them rolling, whether I'm down here three hours or four hours, so we can get all this done for you guys. Um, but the next question is from Jamie Brehot, I believe. And he's asking how to come back from an injury. He said he just had elbow surgery and was cleared to start shooting a little bit. Obviously, first and foremost, don't rush it. I can tell you that I was cleared to start using bands um, and some resistance training almost two and a half weeks ago now for my shoulder. I went into the PT. We did it. Um, we did two full sets of the exercises, and it ended up putting me down for almost a six to eight days um, my shoulder just completely locked up again I wasn't able my range of motion went down almost 60 percent um, literally overnight because I was excited to go so I went I went too fast um, so I really regressed so now I'm back to stretching again um, I just started to do some resistance yesterday um, but you know, it took me three weeks to get back from that one day of trying to go too far, too fast. So my advice would be to try to ask someone, I'm not an elbow person. I mean, obviously I've got some experience right now on shoulder, but you really need to ask someone that's specific to that. And you need to personally, I know for me, I'm willing to 
have to shoot my mouth tab an extra two months, uh, then end up having to go through this surgery again in, in another two years. So I'm going to take it slow and whether or not I have to, uh, not use my left arm this whole year, it doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm going to commit to recovering at the right pace and following, uh, this really slow and methodical system that my doctor, um, whom is Dr. Napola, he's notorious for having people come out of the surgeries, uh, the best because I think he has a very systematic and methodical um, protocol that does not take things too fast. And that's really what you have to do because if you go too fast, um, you're going to end up being just like me and being back in there or being set back. So uh, start with what they tell you, go slow, uh, be consistent, and just like with archery, really focus on form so that you can strengthen that area that you really need to strengthen. Um, so that's all I can tell you, man. Uh, hate that you had to go through your elbow surgery, but um, that's really where we're at. And the next question I had here was from Damian Doran. You talked a little bit about pin bobbling low, and that's really going to relate to what I just talked about. A lot of times it's your dot. Otherwise, if you're shooting too much front weight or try changing the actual pulling point on your string by raising your knock your loop and knock configuration up or down so i'm going to shut this one down and we'll be back for another knock on podcast be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com <laughs>